Amen. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter number 9. I want to read verses 23 and 24. I I appreciate the the theme that I've heard and felt and sensed this morning, and that is to to see Jesus and to see Him alone, which is, uh, for, for a few minutes, what I want to talk about here, and that is worshiping with passion. And uh, when I was asked to introduce, um, you know, there was certain things that's been on my heart lately, and I just felt like, based on where God had me, and being asked to introduce, what what better to talk about than worshiping God with passion for a few moments? Um, that song that we just sang, "I Would See Jesus," um, beautiful, amazing words in that song, but. One little phrase just kind of caught me um, that I haven't noticed in that song before, and that is the the bridegroom of my soul. Um, You know, and we just had this marriage conference, and um, I I love the bride that God's given me, and and, uh, for for me, she's the most amazing person in the world and helps to make me who I am as well. But the bridegroom of my soul... um, is who I come to worship this morning and who I know that you have come to worship this morning. <clears throat> so in Jeremiah chapter number 9, starting at verse 23, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understand and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Oh, that we would know him and understand him. Do, do you know him? Do you understand him this morning? Wisdom, riches, might, as great as they may be, he is far greater and he won't share his glory with another. So I thought of the catechisms that we all go through and learn at a very young age, and the catechisms explain to us very simply why we were created. We were created not only in His image, but we were created to glorify Him. We were created to glorify God. So that's why we've gathered this morning. Um, For sake of time, I won't turn to all these passages. I've got them typed out here. Read them. Real quick, but in Revelation chapter number 4, verse 11, the Bible says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things. For Thy pleasure they are and were created. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, And all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. You know, we cannot worship with passion until we know what we're here for. We're here for God's glory. That's why we're on this earth. I don't just mean here in this building this morning, which I hope we're here in this building this morning to worship Him, but we are here on this earth to glorify God. Who are we here for? 
Even this morning, who are we here for? What, what, what are we doing here? Who are we here to see? Are we here to see friends? Are we here to uh, see Pastor Marvin get up in front of us? Are we here to see or be seen? Um, is it our new dress or boots? What, what, are, what are we here for? All the way down to the very young children. Why are you here this morning? What's on your mind? Perhaps someone had a difference with their wife this morning or husband or children. Maybe children had a difference with their parent this morning. Maybe there's something lying between a parent and a child. Maybe there's something between siblings. Perhaps someone's stressing over work or things at home. Maybe it's some project you want to do or, um, or friends that you can't wait to see later or get with. Something else going on this week. But this morning, may God help us to clear our minds and to see Him and to worship with passion. We should only come here for one purpose, and that is to worship God. Children, this morning, if you're waiting on perfect parents to worship God, or you're waiting on perfect parents to be obedient, you'll never worship God, and you'll never be obedient. You'll never benefit from God's blessings regarding obedience. You're never going to have perfect parents. And the same thing can be said to us parents. We're waiting on perfect children to get our families together. Um, we'll be waiting too long. So how, how do we approach everything else in life? Think about, think about the ball games you go to. Maybe, maybe sports is not your thing in life. What is your thing? You know, every, every life, we, we should live life with passion and purpose. The Bible talks about that. It says a people without a vision will perish. So what is your vision? What is your purpose and passion in life? But that's another whole subject within itself for another time. As we approach the things in life that we are passionate about, we do it with excitement. We do it with anticipation and joy. You know, going back to the ball games, I'm a big sports fan. I know we got a lot of sports fans here, so I'll use sports even if that's not your thing. Um, but we go to games and we hoop and holler and we get into that. We get excited. And uh, the older we get, we feel that blood pressure rise too. So watch out for that. But we, we get into it with passion. I mean, sometimes we really lose our mind and scream just as loud as we can because we're excited about our team. Do you have that kind of excitement this morning as you gather here to worship God? Because if we don't, if that's not somewhere inside us, something's not right in our lives. We need to worship God with passion. We should come to worship Him with passion, with a longing to be here and to feel and hear the Spirit of God within us. <clears throat> when I was pretty young, probably about, well, about the age of many of you here this morning, I'm guessing in my early teens or throughout my teens, there was an old preacher that I used to hear preach from time to time, and he was not Primitive Baptist. I didn't come up in a Primitive Baptist church, but I come up in sovereign grace and the doctrines of grace and believing in God's sovereignty and election. And this, this preacher... Um, believe the same thing. But uh, as he got up um, to preach, 
I don't really remember a time when what I'm about to tell you didn't happen. But he, it didn't take him long to get into the message until, I mean, he was screaming just about. And when he got through preaching, I can recall sitting on the front one or two pews there, being close enough to see, he would get down and he would walk. And there was sweat dripping from the end of his tie. Now, did that make him holy? No, not, not at all. But I remember hearing the messages that he preached, and I remember feeling the Spirit of God inside me, listening to the words that was being preached from the Scripture. Well, later on, years later, I heard him tell a story or explain why he preached the way that he did. And again, it wasn't how he preached that made anything about him serving God passionate necessarily. It was what was in his heart. And he gave that example. He said, if I'm going to go to the ball game and I'm going to hoop and holler or I'm going to play sport or whatever and do it to all of my ability... He said, I felt when God called me to preach that I must do the same thing with the same passion and drive to preach, to serve the Lord. So again, this, this morning, the point is not that we, we have to get, get sweaty to, to serve the Lord. Um, the point is to do it with passion, to do it from our hearts. It's not about the show. Remember, it's, it's for the glory of God. That's, that's why we're here. It's for His glory. But to do it with passion, with zest, with zeal, hungering and thirsting after God. It's not, for, it's not to see me, to see you, to be seen, or to, to be seen, but to seek first the kingdom of God. That's what the Scripture says. To seek first. Was your first purpose coming this morning... To seek the kingdom of God. To worship Him. The Bible also tells us that God will not share His glory with another. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. You know, again, it's not about being seen or being heard. It's about serving God and worshiping Him. It's about genuinely worshiping God with passion. So going back to the, the ball games, we, we hoop and holler like a crazy person sometimes, but you know, what would we think this morning if someone stood up to praise the Lord? What, what would we think if someone ran an aisle? You know, what would you think about that? Would you be willing to do that? What, what if somebody raised their hands to praise the Lord? You know, would that make you feel awkward? If you did it yourself, would you feel awkward? If I did, yes, I would probably feel a little awkward. But are we, are, who are we here for? Who are we to be seen by? Who are we here to see? We're not ashamed to do it at the ball game. Why should we be ashamed to worship God with passion? The worship and the whole uh, to worship 
Our worship to God and the Holy Spirit was not, going back to the preacher, it was not the volume of the, it was not his volume of his voice or the sweat that dripped from the end of his tie. It was the worship that came from the results of the devotional passion, the exuberance that resulted in, in, the, in the sweat, in the volume of his voice. I'm not saying Brother Marvin has to get up here this morning and have sweat dripping from the end of his tie. Might all be shocked by that. <laughs> it's about passion, burning desire to worship God. It's about the comparison of what we're willing to do in other areas of our life. Are we willing to serve God that way? In reality, we need to see far beyond anyone that stands up here or anyone that sits beside us in the pew. Uh, We need to hear beyond the physical words that might be said. Do we really believe that while we're here... Uh, and while we're here, that we are gathering in the presence of God. Have we truly come to worship Him? And then I'll close with Luke chapter 24. In verse 32. Really to get... The best context here, we would need to read additional scriptures, but we'll just read verse 32 where it says, And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And in trying to get prepared for this this morning, I, I did not recently read this context of scriptures, but if I remember the context of scriptures, when Jesus showed up to walk with them, I believe they, they didn't know it, it, who he was at first. But if I'm incorrect about that, forgive me. The point is, as, as, they, as he walked with them along that way, their hearts burned within them. Does your heart burn within you this morning? Does your heart burn with you any morning in passion to serve the Lord? I pray that it does. And if it doesn't, I pray that it will. Dear Lord, again, we bow before you this morning and just thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for your word that's forever settled in heaven. We thank you for the spirit of God that you've sent to dwell in us, to guide us, to direct us, to give us the understanding of your word, to give us the understanding of you. As you pointed out to us in Jeremiah, we can understand you, not not the depth, not the breadth of, of your greatness, but that's why you've sent us the Holy Spirit. Well, we thank you for the understanding that, we, that we've been given um, to believe in your word and to see you and to know you. And as Pastor Marvin comes this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would give him uh, liberty and, and may his tongue speak the words that you would have for us this morning. Let it fall on good ground in our hearts um, to bear forth fruit in due season. Most of all, may we all see you high and lifted up, and may we worship and praise your greatness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
you, Jonathan, for those words of introduction. Um, I feel like the Lord blessed you in that and encouraged, encouraged my heart and soul. Actually, my heart started beating pretty fast. Uh, over there checking my pulse and what's going on well, over here. Yes, sir. While I've got it on my mind, mm-hmm. there's been an underlying thread what everything that we've heard this morning. Hmm. Hmm. It's always been my uh, belief that the first place of mankind was vanity. Everything that we do, somehow, if we, an example, Combing my hair this morning, I got a face on the back of my head for a hair stand up. I did a little, I lay down, yeah. and I got aggravated with it. It's vanity. We have to make sure that our shirt matches our pants, our socks <laughs> matches our shoes. Yeah. It's all vanity. Mm. And that's, that, that's the curse. Yeah. And it's just what Brother Jonathan was talking about. And the song that we read this morning, David felt the curse of that vanity in his heart inside. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. We've got something better than our vanity. And that's that's what it's about here this morning. And pray the Lord will continue to to speak to us on that. Um, you know, as he was speaking, I thought of a few good examples that we've had here among us. And of course, my mind first jumped to Jerry Jr. <laughs> you know, when he talked about the <laughs> yelling and the uh, sweat dripping. Because I, I used to, you know, watch him. And when, whenever, he, whenever he got finished, dude was just sweaty. He was exhausted. He could barely speak. Um, and it, you know, naturally, yes, he had, he had a loud voice. But he was passionate. Uh, and he was so into it. And a lot of times, you know, he got down to it being time to quit. And he was just like, ah, you know, <laughs> shoot, I've run out of time. <laughs> he never thought, well, you know, I better bring this to a close because I, I just don't have anything else to say. You know, he was so passionate. He, he always had something to say. He just kind of ran out of time or his voice ran out. And so he was a great example to all of us. And the way he sang, the way he led singing was just beautiful and so a great example for us to follow and then if you've ever uh, been around uh, Tim Cannon he's the same way when it comes to singing and to leading songs just the passion and the exuberance and the love for 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 the Lord Jesus Christ the love for music and you know not everybody's like that but some people are and but like Jonathan said it's about what's in here and that coming out so Encouraged by that uh, this morning. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 6 6 through 9 this morning. And we'll title the message, God's Purpose in Your Suffering. God's Purpose in Your Suffering. Let's start in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, 
ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So after Peter begins the letter by reminding these believers of their true identity, and that the foundation of their hope lies in the work of the triune God, and then reminding them of the reality of their living hope through the new birth, he now begins to address their suffering and how it fits into the plan and purpose of God. How should they understand their suffering in light of the things that he's talked about? The work of the triune God in electing them, in calling them, in setting them apart, in sanctifying them, and the Spirit of God regenerating them and giving them this living hope and that they have an inheritance, an eternal inheritance that's being kept for them and that they're being reserved for this inheritance. How do we understand suffering in light of that? How should they respond to their suffering? And as we look at this text today and as we consider this, how do you understand suffering in your life? How do you respond to suffering in your life? We should be asking the question, what kind of view do I have of suffering and trials in my life? And how do I respond to this in my life? What is the purpose and plan of God in his providence through my suffering? What is he trying to teach me? What is he trying to do in my life? And I believe that simply put, this is what we see in the text. Always remember what God has done for you what he's doing in you, and what he has prepared for you. Always remember that even in the midst of your suffering. That should be at the forefront of your mind. What has God done for me? What is he doing in me? And what has he prepared me for? And if you do that, then you'll, you'll have the right view of suffering. You'll have the right attitude in suffering. Always remember what God has done for you, what he is doing in you, and what he has prepared for you. Number two, understand that all suffering, even though it's hard, all suffering, even though it's hard, lasts only for a season. Lasts only for a season. You must remember that during your suffering. Even though it's hard and it's real, it lasts only for a season. Thirdly, rejoice that God has ordained your sufferings to purify your faith and make you more like Jesus Christ. You can have joy in your suffering if you understand that your suffering has been ordained by God to make you more like Jesus Christ and to purify your faith in Him. And then fourthly, keep in mind that the aim of all that God is doing in your life whether it's suffering or anything else, the aim of all that God is doing in your life is the salvation of your soul. Remember that. The aim of all, the goal of all that God has done, electing you, 
Christ dying for you, the Spirit calling you out from darkness into light, setting you apart through sanctification, and your sufferings. God has ordained all of this. The ultimate end is your salvation, your redemption, your deliverance from sin. It's curse. Before we look at the text this morning, I would like to just briefly consider two Old Testament saints that we can clearly see these truths manifest in their experience. Number one is Job. When you look at Job, you can get, be encouraged from his testimony and his witness that here's a man whom God ordained the suffering that came upon him. And God used this suffering to purify Job's faith and trust in him. And the aim or goal of this was his salvation. We see that Job suffered greatly. Job's suffering was real. Job's suffering was hard. Job's suffering was for a season. Job's suffering caused him grief, pain, agony. It caused him depression. It caused him anxiety. It, ca it caused all these things, and all these things were real. But you can be encouraged by the example of Job that he made it through all of those things and he triumphed because God was working through it for a purpose. Another example is Joseph. A great example of one who loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He loved his parents. He loved his brothers, even though they treated him harshly. He was unjustly treated he was, sold, he, was, he was thrown in a pit by his brothers. They sold him as a slave to Egypt. When he got to Egypt, he had to live in the prison. He got out of the prison. He served faithfully. He was falsely accused and put back into prison. And God used all of this to purify Joseph's faith and trust in God and use him for his purposes. Job... Job said this in, after a time and a season of all his sufferings and all the pain that he went through. He said this in Job 23.10, and you know this. But God, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, right now I'm in the middle of the trial. I'm in the middle of being tested. But I know that he knows me and he knows the way that I've, he has ordained for me. And when I... When He says, when I make it, I will come forth as gold. And then Joseph said this in Genesis 50, verses, verse 20, when he's talking to his brothers, when they're fearing about how he's going to respond to them and what they did to him, he says this, But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save many people alive. God used your evil. He took your evil, what you meant for evil. He used it for good. I had to suffer. I had to. I had to be tried for the salvation of many people. So he understood the importance of suffering. And then one Last verse to keep in the forefront of our minds as we go through 1 Peter in general is always Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called 
according to his purpose. God uses all things for your good. And then that includes suffering. I think that we, we fall way too short. And we, we don't glorify God at all when we say that God has nothing to do with suffering. And there are many people who believe that. Suffering is because of the devil. Suffering is because of sin. God works despite that. That's not the truth of Scripture. And that doesn't, that, that doesn't give all the glory and honor to God. God has ordained suffering. And God works in and through suffering for your good. Ultimately, for your salvation. Now, let's look briefly at our text. And I want to encourage you with three truths about suffering as it relates to the purpose and plan of God in your life. Three truths that relate to the purpose and plan of God through suffering in your life. Number one, suffering is for a season. Number two, suffering is for your sanctification. And thirdly, suffering is for your salvation. So let's begin in verse 6 and consider our first truth. Number one, suffering is for a season. He says, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The ESV translates it in this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. As we said already, all suffering is hard. All suffering is painful. All suffering seems like it's going to last forever. Right? David would say this, that, that though sorrow lasts you know, th- through the night, it, there, it seems like that morning is never going to come. Sorrow is lasting through the night. But he said, but joy comes in the morning. But in the night, it seems like the morning's never going to come. If you've had those kind of nights, then you understand what he's talking about. When you're in the night, it doesn't seem like it's going to end. But if we believe and we have this hope, this living hope that's alive and that's vibrant, and this, this joy and this passion for the glory of God that Jonathan talked to us about this morning, then we know that even though the night is long, Yet joy comes in the morning and God is working in the night season and all the day long. So suffering is hard. Suffering is painful and all suffering seems like it's going to last forever. But first, remember this. Remember that the heart of Christ is touched with your suffering. Never think that suffering, that all suffering is punishment from God. Now, there is suffering. Jonathan has said there is suffering that that is a result of us sticking our hand into the fire. But there is suffering that happens to us that is because of sin and is because of the devil. And the heart of Christ is touched with our grief. It's touched with our suffering. We studied this when we went through the series about how Christ is, is gentle and lowly. And that the heart of Christ, the, the way that you see the heart of Christ the most is when we are suffering. When we, even when we have sinned, the heart of Christ bursts forth in, in, in grief and in, and in joy and then in meeting us in our grief and our pain. 
So remember first that the heart of Christ is touched with your pain. He sympathizes with you. He empathizes with you because he went through pain and suffering like no one else has. And he holds your hand all the way through the suffering. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Because he was in all points tested like we are, yet he never sinned. He helps you carry your burdens. So first, remember that the heart of Christ is touched with your pain. Secondly, remember that your current suffering will only last for a season. It will only last for a season. We have some suffering that is just for a short while in our life. It's just temporary. It doesn't last long. We have other sufferings that that last longer and that may endure. You know, you may have a suffering that endures your whole life while you live here on this earth. Still a little season, as Luke said. Our life is but a vapor when it appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So ultimately, when you're talking about span of eternity, even if we suffer our whole lives, it's for a season. It's for a little while. So remember that. And so we see in the text that we're looking at this morning that the first thing Peter does is remind them that they can have joy even in the midst of suffering because of what God has done for them, what he is doing in them, and what he has planned for them. That's what he did in the preceding five verses. And then he goes on to say this is what it looks like in your life now while you're going through the suffering. Wherein you greatly rejoice. Or in this you greatly rejoice. This wherein that he says in verse 6. Or in this is going back to the preceding five verses. Talking about God electing you. Jesus Christ dying for you and being raised from the dead for you. The Spirit quickening you and filling you with His Spirit. And giving you this living hope and giving you this expectation of eternal life to come, your home in heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. In this, he says, you greatly rejoice. You have that passion. You have that joy. Even, he says, even if need be for a season, you're going through many different trials. The word greatly rejoice, it means, get ready for it, to jump. Now, Jonathan talked about this, all right? You're not going to see many of us jumping in church. You're not even going to see many of us raising our hands. You're not going to hear many of us even shouting or, or, you know, we might get out of amen or something like that. But he's saying that if we understand what God has done for us and what he's doing in us and what he has prepared for us, and that we understand that even in the midst of suffering, God is doing something for us, he says... You can jump for joy. You can be full of joy. This is overwhelming happiness, overwhelming excitement that leads to something happening on the outside. Now, Jonathan said all all that already, and I think that was a great illustration, that when we're passionate about something, you usually see it come out. That's not always the case. There are some things that we're passionate about that you don't see come out of us. Some of us 
Some of us keep things in, even though we're passionate about them. Other people, you're going to see and hear everything that they're passionate about because that's their personality. But I think ultimately that if we are really passionate about something, we'll at least say something about it. It might not be in an exuberant way like Jonathan talked about, but you're going to see it. And this is what Peter's doing. Remember, he already did it in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's breaking out into praise when he's thinking about what God has done in his life. The mercy that he showed him, the forgiveness that he showed him, the restoration that Jesus Christ showed Peter, and how now Peter is, has been used by Christ in, in miraculous ways. He's rejoicing and he's telling the people who are suffering, you can greatly rejoice because this is what God has done for you. This is what he's doing in you. This is what he's prepared you for. And then Peter will go on to say in verse 8, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. This, this is inexpressible joy. It's, it's, it's unutterable joy. And it's full of glory. Praise. So, you know, we ask the question, how do I respond to suffering in my life? What kind of view do I have of suffering in my life? How many times when you're experiencing suffering, are you leaping for joy? Are you praising God and thanking God for allowing you to suffer so that your faith can be tried and be tested and that you can grow closer to God and that you can become more like Jesus Christ? And that goes back to our vanity and pride. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to experience pain. We don't want to experience loss because we're proud and and we're vain. But we have to change our perspective on this, and I think that's what Peter's trying to do with them. They're asking him, Peter, why are we suffering? We're doing everything that, that the apostles have said. We're doing everything that Jesus has said. We're, we, have, we have surrendered our lives to him. Why are we suffering? Why are we being treated unjustly? And how, how should we respond to this? You know, he doesn't say, well... You know, this is because you did this and this is why you're suffering. He doesn't say, well, you should just, you should really just not talk about it. You know, you should just press on and put on a good face and, you know, have a fake smile and act like, you know, nothing's wrong and and you should just, you should just be a good Christian. No, he says, your suffering's real. He says, you, if, if need be, you are in heaviness. That means great grief. So it's real. But he says, don't lose the the perspective that even though this is real and even though this is heavy, yet it's for a season and God has a purpose and a plan in it. And he wants you to have joy. He wants, all this is for your joy. Not for your pain. And we go back to the illustration of why does a parent discipline their child when they do something wrong? It's not so, it's not because they enjoy inflicting pain on their children. That's child abuse. That's wrong. That's sinful. We lovingly discipline our children because we want them to have joy. And when they sin, they rob themselves of joy. And we do the same thing. 
And God has to discipline us because he loves us and he wants us to have joy. And sin robs us of joy. 1 Peter 4.13, he says, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That's overflowing with joy when they're persecuting you. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceed. Uh, sorry, just that was another verse. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sproul said the Christian life in all circumstances is to manifest that fruit of the Spirit, joy. In all circumstances. The fruit of the Spirit is, is always there. Joy. For a season. The word literally means puny. I kind of laughed when I looked that up. <laughs> I didn't expect that. It's the word puny. He says, if need be, for a little while. Sproul also says that Peter mentions that their trials are temporary. But he also says that they have a purpose. Trials are temporary, but they have a purpose. A great example, he goes on to say, of Christians having joy even through suffering are the slaves in early American history. The, 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 the believers. I mean, you want to be encouraged by somebody, and I did a little bit this week. I mean, the people that... get emotional thinking about it. But treated so harshly and so unjustly because of the color of their skin. But yet, those that were true believers, in many cases, they never complained. And they had such a great example because one of the things that sustained them through that time was singing. Singing. Worshiping. The worship. And some of the greatest songs that we have came out of that time period. The spiritual songs that came and were born out of suffering for Christ. Swing low. Sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me. I said, look, we're suffering for a little while, but chariots await to take us home. I thought if I cried when I studied that, I wouldn't cry when I got in the pulpit. Peter would, Peter would say in chapter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and watchful in prayer. You're, you're suffering 
Even though it's hard and it's the night season, it's the end is near, brothers and sisters. The end of your life, the end of this time in history, the end of the world as we know it, the time is nearer now than it is, has ever been. So be watchful, be serious. In chapter 5, he'll go on to say, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. If need be, he says, it, we do need it. We need suffering. If need be. Why? He'll go on to say, because your faith is precious. Your faith is precious. Psalm 119, verse 75. David says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. David said the Lord afflicted him in faithfulness and in righteousness. Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah says in verse 32 and 33, Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. So he says... Rejoice, even though, if need be, for a season, ye are in heaviness. The word means to suffer grief, to be in pain, to be vexed, to be sad, to be weighed down. That's the reality of suffering and what it does. Suffering is painful, grievous, vexing, and causing us sadness. This is real. And we admit that it's real, just like David did, just like Job did. Job says in Job 9, 27 through 28, If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. Job says we can't put on a fake face. Job tore his mantle, shaved his head, and covered him in sackcloth and ashes. David says in Psalm 69.20, and this is, a, this is a prophetic psalm also of Christ, Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. And that was also the same of Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And so he cried out, My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? You know, everybody else forsook him, but he always had his father. He always had his God. But he felt at that moment, because of him suffering for our sins, he felt that his father had forsaken him. David would also say in Psalm 119, 28, My soul melts from heaviness. I mean, that's a pretty vivid description. Your soul melting because of the heaviness of your 
of the pressures of life. And then he prays, strengthen me according to your word. Where do you get the strength when you have that kind of heaviness? How do you get the joy when you have that kind of heaviness? The word of God. The word of God. Truth. And he says you're going to have manifold. Manifold suffering. Various or diverse. Just like it. Just like James says in James 1 2, right, Jonathan? Count it pure joy when ye fall into various or diverse trials or temptations. David said in Psalm 34 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus doesn't ignore the fact that we have heaviness, that we have suffering, that we have pain, that we have heaviness of heart. He just says, take heart because I'm with you through it and I have overcome it. For your good. And I will use it for your good. So. Number one. Be encouraged that your suffering. Is for a season. They are many. They are real. They are painful. But you can have joy in the midst of them. Because God has a purpose in them. And they will only last for a season. Now we go to verse 7. And we look at the second truth. That I'd like to encourage you with. Is suffering is for your sanctification. Suffering is for your sanctification. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Sanctification means setting you apart for a holy purpose. It means making you more like Jesus Christ. Suffering is making us more like Jesus Christ. God is using your suffering to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. It is like the sculpture that hammers, chisels away on whatever he's working on, making it and conforming it into the image that he desires. That's what God's doing through your suffering. Chipping away, making you into the image of Christ. R.C. says, God uses afflictions wrought by human hostility for the ultimate well-being of his children. In this text here, we see a marvelous reaffirmation of the doctrine of the providence of God. He also says, the hand of God trumps the evil intent of those who would wound you. And he uses in his gracious providence those various experiences of affliction and pain for his glory and for our ultimate edification. The the word says that, that, so that, in order that, the trial, the authenticity, the genuineness, the trustworthiness of your faith. That's what's being tested. That's what's being tried. More precious means of great value, very costly, extremely valuable. Your faith, your trust in God. Your dependence upon God. That is what is of extreme value to God. 
Though it be tried, that means to be refined, to be tested, to be approved. And it's in the present tense. You're always being tried. You're always being tested. Your faith is always being put through the fire. Sproul says, God says that our faith has a much greater value than gold. You know, gold has always kind of been the, the, the thing that we think of something that is the most valuable, right? The gold standard, right? Um, and you'll see this throughout the scriptures that it talks about the preciousness of, of gold or silver. And we still, have, we still have that throughout history, even up into our early history, where our money was backed by the gold standard, right? But now it's just backed by paper. And that may not last. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, For what profit is a man to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Your soul is more valuable to God than your comfort. Certainly than riches or anything else that our vanity seeks after. Your faith is much more precious to God than your comfort. He tests us. Job said that. When he has tested me. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. David said in Psalm 17, 3, You have tried my heart. You have tested my heart. You'll have trials. Jesus said, In this world you will have many trials and tribulations. Peter would go on to encourage them in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. In Psalm 66, verse 10 through 12, David says this For you have tried us, O God, you have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon your loins. You have made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. And then we read this passage Wednesday night, Isaiah 43, 2. When you go through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. So the promise is, is you'll walk through waters, you'll go through the fire, But the promise is, I will be with you, and I will deliver you. They will not overtake you. They will not consume you. You can rejoice that though you have many afflictions, yet God through them is making you more like Jesus Christ. His Spirit rests upon you. Lastly, we look at verses 8 and 9, and are encouraged with one final truth. Suffering is for your salvation. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though you see, though now you see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Paul Peter is rejoicing that they believe in Christ whom they have not seen. Peter saw Christ. He could tell them, I saw Christ, I walked with Christ. This is what Christ said to me, this is what we observed. These people had not seen Christ, yet they loved Him. They had, not, they had not seen Him, yet they believe in Him. And even though they had not seen Him, 
Peter says, you're full of joy, unspeakable and full of glory. That's the same with all of you here this morning. You haven't seen Christ with your literal eyes, yet you love him. You haven't seen Christ, yet you trust in every word that he spoke and that this word speaks of. And you have joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Because his spirit is within you. He has placed his spirit within you. And therefore you have the eyes of faith. Eyes of faith. He is trying our faith like gold that is tried in the fire. To purify it. To remove the impurities. To remove the uh, things that aren't pure. To make it pure. To make it praiseworthy. To make it glorious. John said to his disciples, uh, John records that Jesus said to his disciples after upbraiding them for their lack of faith in him, not believing the report of the women who came and told him that he was alive, not, but some of them still not believing when yet he had appeared and the others weren't there, he said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you today. We want to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Passes knowledge. Faith is believing something, is trusting in something that you have not seen, but yet you know it to be true. And so Paul would say, while well, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are hidden. He's going to say, for we walk by faith and not by sight. You know, this is why suffering comes a lot into our lives. is because we're walking by sight. And God says, you need to get your eyes off of that. And get your eyes back on me. Your faith. Your faith. The object of your faith is me. The object of your worship is me. Not yourself. Not anything else. We have this wonderful, encouraging word that Brother Lewis shared with us out of the book of Habakkuk. You don't have to turn there. They were going through a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of dark days. And they were going to. But they had this hymn of faith that they would sing. Though the fig tree may not blossom, no fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord in, and I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills, even in the midst. Of the darkness, even in the midst of the suffering, yet we will believe, yet we will rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the goal, the aim of your faith is your salvation, your salvation, your deliverance, your rescue, 
your safety. You know, the Old Testament saints, they had faith. And it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but believed them and were assured of them. And they were ultimately, the end of that faith that they had was the salvation of their souls. The end of your faith, the end of the, the aim and the goal of all your suffering is the salvation of your soul. That's more precious than your comfort. That's more precious than your money. That's more precious than your sleep. That's more precious than, than even relationships. It's more precious than anything that we consider valuable in this life. Your faith and what leads to your salvation is the ultimate goal. And so that's why we can have joy in the midst of suffering. Because God is saving us. God is saving us for something much greater than what this world has to offer. Much greater than all the vanity which we hold so dear. He has chosen you. He has died for you. He has redeemed you. He has called you out. And He is keeping you by His power because He has reserved an inheritance for you that is never going to fade away, that can't be touched, that can't be corrupted, that can't be defiled, and He's keeping you for that inheritance... Right now you're having to suffer for a little while. And it's painful. It's hard. But just remember the joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters, and listen to the words of Christ. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle And lowly, you will receive rest for your souls. Go to Christ in the midst of your suffering and have that joy that will make you jump.